thank you to Clio for their support of the California Innocence Project and this podcast. Welcome back. We now continue with part two of Brian's story. In our last episode, Brian suddenly found himself falsely accused of rape by classmate Juanetta Gibson. He was arrested, separated from his family, and waited behind bars for a year before his case began. Despite waging the entirety of their family resources on Brian's legal defense, he received very poor representation. As a result, he took a badly advised plea deal, thinking he would only get 90 days in prison. As it turned out, the judge sentenced him to six years. And that's where we pick things up. I'm Michael Simanchik, and you're listening to the California Innocence Project podcast, here on Legal Talk Network. Spent most of my life in prison Chasing a dream called justice Chasing a dream, chasing a dream Won't somebody please hear my plea Won't somebody please set me free Brian Banks was behind bars trying to appeal his sentence. He no longer had financial resources to fight for his freedom. And to make matters worse, his attorney wanted off the case. His future was in jeopardy and time was ticking. He was running out of options. They played me into a deal. And she knew what was going to happen. And I know she knew because after they sentenced me and I went to prison, she sent me a letter when I was in prison. I was in Delano State Prison. I was going through orientation. And basically what they do is it's kind of like a they evaluate you. It's an evaluation process to determine what level of security that they should put you on. Level one being minimum security, level four being max. And they base it on a whole point system based off of priors, age, gang enhancements, gang involvements, all kind of shit. So my points will go up, go down six, go up two, go down three, go up. Anyways, I got a 29. I think it was a 29. So that's the level three or four or something. They gave me a level three, (laughs) put me on a level three maximum security. And I was, I looked at the counselor. I said, are you serious? I said, ma'am, my shit is a 29. I was like a level two is 27, two points. Mm -hmm. I remember having this discussion. I'm like, it's two points. I'm like, you're going to put me on level three. I'm 18 years old. I've never been locked up before. She's like, I'm sorry, there's the points. There's nothing I can do. You could try to reappeal and yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm I'm going on a level three maximum security prison now. So anyways, while I'm inside this reception center waiting to go to a level three, I get a letter from her, the lawyer saying, you know, I'm working on a, an appeal for your case so we can appeal the sentencing to get you that probation. But in order for us to do that, we need to get you an appellate attorney. We have one in my office. But for that person to be your attorney, you got to sign me off as your attorney so that we can sign this person on. So enclosing this letter is a letter of letting her go. And then he going to contact. Then we're going to get him to bring you on. I signed a letter and send it back. I ain't heard from that lady to this day. Mm-hmm. To this day. My mom has not heard from her to this day. 
We have called. We never got back all my football recruiting letters. Nothing. She completely ghosted us. Ghosted us and never heard from her again. And I was left in prison. We didn't have no money for another lawyer. My mom sold her house, sold her car, put every dime that she had into her, like literally moved out of the house. We had an artesia. We moved back to Long Beach into what she did while I was in jail. Back to in a two-bedroom apartment in Long Beach. We had just got a townhouse, man. She just finally got a townhouse right after my step-pops passed away, you know? And now here she was. She gave it all away, the car, everything. Moved right back to Long Beach, back to the apartments. The sentence and the financial losses were astounding. But as bad as they were, you could at least argue, we can appeal and at some point somehow there would be a financial recovery. The same could not be said about once-in-a-lifetime dreams. Sports, football in particular, is a young person's endeavor. And the clock was ticking for Brian. This prison sentence spelled curtains for his dream. As good as an athlete as he was, that much time away from football at that stage was unfeasible. It's over. It's over. And and that part was devastating, too, because football was everything. You know what I mean? When you're a kid and you finally get hooked on to something, you know, for some it's girls and shit. Like, you know, be, oh, I've got a girlfriend. I'm hooked. Football, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Out there with the fellas, man, running shit over, hitting people, you know, making noise, making the fans go crazy, you know, playing under the lights on Friday night. God, bro, that was life, man. That was it right there. Like, there was nothing else but football, mm. you know? There was nothing. I quit basketball when I realized that football was it for me. You know, I got my first recruiting letter from USC before any other school in my 10th grade year as sophomore. Football was just like, oh, man, you know, you get to just have fun out there with the guys. So to just be in there fighting the case for a whole year, the senior year where everything was supposed to be on you. Mm-hmm. And you watch your guys like that was the year my football team went to go play in Hawaii. All expense paid trip wow. to play against the two best teams. Uh, it was the two best Hawaiian teams versus the two best California teams. Wow. And uh, it was De La Salle. Concord de la Salle from up north. It was Long Beach Poly from down south. And then we played against the Kahuku Red Raiders. And it was one other team. But like the fact that I still remember this shit tells you how much it's like ingrained in my fucking head. Like Mm -hmm. this was life. This was that's what was going on. You know, so I had to watch those guys go. I had to hear about it when I was fighting my case. Oh, man, we went to Hawaii. Shit was fucking crazy. We did this. We did that. We won. We you know, we had the second national championship game ever in high school football history. The first one ever was us against Concord de la Salle. Maurice Jones Drew ran us the fuck over. You know what I mean? He put us in a blender. You know, we could not hold him and contain him. He was a beast. We were supposed to play them again as, you know, come back and I was going to lead the team on defense. And here we are trying to win at this time. And I missed that. I was fighting the case. I missed that. I missed my whole senior year, my graduation, all the guys and the girls walking on stage. I missed that from the notorious Long Beach Poly High School. Snoop Dogg, Cameron Diaz, a whole bunch of other people. We got some dude in Congress. Big time. As you can hear, Brian missed out on a lot incredible once-in-a-lifetime events that were taken from him because someone decided to lie. How difficult that must have been to be falsely accused and watch everything you were supposed to be part of, everything you worked so hard for, pass you by. And all the meanwhile, you were forced to live in horrendous conditions, suffering, 
surrounded by the country's most violent and dangerous people. And the strip is different between juvenile hall and prison. Juvenile hall, they strip you down to your boxers. You don't get completely naked. You put your clothes off. You got your boxers. You take your two thumbs. You go around the waistband of your boxers to show that you don't have nothing. And that's it. I got there. I had never been in a real strip search like that before. They strip you down naked. They left us in a cell of about a hundred and some guys in a cell naked for hours while they pull out one guy alphabetical order to process you. And after you get processed, as you walk out to go get processed, they give you a bedroll. Inside that bedroll is some clothes that you can put on. <laughs> so oh you about to, you, thanks, you come out of this shit naked. Somebody, well, another inmate throw you a bedroll. Ain't no morals, man. That shit's no. out the door, bro. Codes of ethics, morals, you know, being degraded, humiliation, you know, not even treated like a human being or even a man. You know what I mean? Like, it's just many instances of stuff like that. Like before you even get to the fights and the riots and the stabbings, it's the living conditions, man, where you're just like, you don't know if you're going to make it out based off that alone. You know, not the guys, the criminals, the killers. That's a whole nother side of it too. But just surviving the living conditions of jail, surviving the demoralization of the human spirit, you keep thinking about that every moment of the day until the day you get out of there. I'm not even supposed to be here. Like you just oh. keep seeing shit. You keep dealing with shit. You keep having riots. You get into fights and, and you're just like, I shouldn't even be here, man. But you got to deal with it. You start taking on the racist rules and regulations of California state prisons of don't talk to white people. Don't talk to Mexicans. Don't eat with them. Don't don't play basketball or any sports with them. Don't communicate or trade. And if they step over those boundaries, then you got to fuck them up or we're going to fuck you up. And it's like, you, you know, you, you start learning all of this racist shit and you start seeing it. And then it's kind of hard to come home from that and think that people everywhere don't look at you the same way. Brian had to hide what he was falsely accused of behind bars. Prison is an extremely dangerous place for people accused of rape. But given that his case was so high profile, it was simply not going to be possible. It may have been divine intervention, but for some reason, even though things were out in the open, his alleged crimes were never acted upon by those who wished to do him harm. In juvenile hall, everybody knows what everybody's in there for. The juvenile hall guard carries a clipboard with everybody's name and your case right next to it. And they just sit the board around and you go walk up to it, look at it. And you, oh, then he's in here for this, whatever, whatever. Right. When I got locked up, my story hit the news. So a lot of people were familiar with me when I came in there, the football player from Poly. So those guys in juvenile hall knew, but the rules in the halls were different, you know, like. You could be in there in there for whatever, so long as it wasn't something that everybody decided to gang up on you for. <laughs> you know, like if you're in there for rape, it's like, oh, that motherfucker's in here for rape. But he's also fucking hella weird. Let's beat his ass. You know what I mean? Like it was more for you being weird than it was for you being what you're they're saying you're in there for. Once you get to prison, now it matters what you're in there for. So your paperwork gotta be clean. Clean meaning no rape. No molestations, no no baby abuse. And depending on the physical abuse to a woman, depending on the situation, they're going to tear your ass up for that too. 
But women and children is kind of that snitching too. Don't snitch. Obviously, if you got snitching on your record, that may be worse than worse than anything. Um, so snitching, any sexual assault cases, any cases involving kids or women uh, is subject to you getting fucked up in there uh, or losing your life in there. For me, it was different because the politics are run differently by the races that are in there. So, like I said, everything is racially divided. How things are governed are also racially divided as well. And each race deals with things differently. So for Hispanics and whites, you probably won't get past reception release before somebody asking you for your paperwork. You got to pull that shit out right then and there and show what what you're in there for. Like now. And if it's bad, it's going to be bad for you. For blacks, unless you don't have a super high profile case and unless you're not a known, respected type of gang member or somebody with some kind of clout, you can pretty much get under the radar, kind of like, you know, don't ask, don't tell, unless you bring attention to yourself. So I, I was when I was in there, if anybody ever asked me what I was in there for, I told him I was in there for home invasion. Mm. I took the rap for one of my homeboys that broke into somebody's house we knew. And the guy always knew that we hung out together. So when he called the police, he called the police on both of us. And I took the rap for the homie. That's how they gave me six years. Nobody ever questioned it. Damn. Uh, one time. So <laughs> it's crazy. When I went to Chino back to that first prison visit, I swear to you. There were many moments when I was incarcerated where I truly felt that there was a higher being or a a higher force that was protecting me. And I'll give you a perfect example. Chino State Prison, I just got off that bus. Strip search, naked till I get some clothes and get processed finally get to a dorm it was a gym that had been transformed into a dorm basketball gym three-tier bunk beds somebody got to sleep in the middle type shit like sardines cramped there's a gun tower at the top of the gymnasium with a gun hanging out that shit to use the m14s in there and there's a guy constantly watching with the gun out waving that shit ready to fire off at anything there's bullet holes in the fucking wall of the gymnasium. There's a red line on the wall with big red writing that says, there will be no warning shots. (laughs) It's real, right? I'm in there and uh, I had just got in there maybe five minutes. They'd send me to a bunk bed. I got lucky and got a two-story bunk bed. I'm unraveling my bedroll. I'm trying to make my little bunk bed. And some dude walks up to me that I had never met before. Black guy. It's like, what's up, homie? I'm like, what's going on? And he like, uh, you Brian Banks, right? I was like, oh shit. Right? Like, fuck, the motherfucker probably knows me, knows my case, whatever. I don't know. I'm like, yeah, that's me. He's like, all right, that's what's up, man. Like, yeah, man, you know my crying me, my crying me, man, my cousin, Caleb. And I was like, oh, Caleb, like, fuck, me and Caleb grew up together. Like, Caleb was my boy from, he went to another high school in Long Beach. I went to another high school. We had history. I'm like, you Caleb cousin? I'm like, cool, man. I'm like, what's up, bro? So I'm, I'm meeting somebody that I like, 
I know through somebody else, which is like a breath of fresh air. I'm no longer somewhat alone. Mm-hmm. But he takes it one step further. Here's a divine intervention. He goes, yeah, man, um, <clears throat> I want you to know. He pulls me in. He's like, I want you to know. I worked the front up there where all the paperwork come in. And I, I saw your paperwork come through. I want you to know I pushed your shit through. Nobody saw your shit. Wow. Out of everybody in the entire prison that could have been working that job, it was somebody who knew me, who knew that I was in there for some shit that was bullshit, and who hid my paperwork and just sent it through so nobody else could see it. Like that, how does that happen? Right? So that was the one instance. The only other time where like I may have had an issue was when I was on a level three. And I had just got my points that determine your level of security. My points dropped. I was there for a year and some change. My points dropped low enough for me to go to a level two. And uh, the day that I was packing my shit and leaving, one of my quote unquote homies who ran in our in our group. Who was a gang member who was a real one, right? I was packing my shit. He came into my cell and closed the door. And I stood up. I turned around. He was standing and he was like, hey, man, um, I just want you to know I know what you I know what you in here for. I always knew what you was in here for. But I reached out to the streets and I hit up from people and they know you and they, they told me to run down and I know what it's all about. So everything cool. But like I want you to know that shit ain't cool. Like you got us all on the line walking around with you and you got this on your jacket, you know, whether you did it or not, like we didn't know. He was like, so, you know, I just want you to know, like we good, but you know, that shit wasn't cool. Now this all before I didn't do it. I I got evidence. I'm innocent. None of that shit existed at the time. This wasn't me reaching out to CIP and trying to fight the case. This is me literally in prison, you know, on a rape charge, you know? So that was the only time, like I thought me and dude was going to get it cracking in there. I thought we was going to thunder in there. Which would have been bad for him, but probably bad for me later in the end because of everybody he was associated with. You know what I mean? He was he wasn't even a big dude, he was a small dude, but he, you know, he was in there like, yo, I know. I was like, oh fuck. You know. So and then there was one other time I was I ran past a couple of dudes that I was in juvenile hall with, like Hispanics and stuff, that probably knew what I was in there for, but they never said nothing. Like, because we don't talk to each other. We I see him on a prison yard. Oh fool, that's what's his name. Can't talk to him, so you just keep walking, you know. Brian would eventually serve his time and get out of prison. He tried to get his football career and education going again, but because he was out on parole and a registered sex offender, the obstacles would be too great. He struggled to re-enter society, and but for some very important women in his life, his mom and his girlfriend, Brian believes he would have been living on the streets. Parole was a different monster. Um, and that's more of a psychological thing. Nah, it's also physical because you, you, you're limited, but it's more of a psychological thing. But I paroled August 29, 2007, 22 years old. Um, I spent my 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd birthday incarcerated. Get home at 22. They put me on parole. But initially the parole wasn't as strict as it ended up being. I was a registered sex offender, so I had to register wherever I lived, but I didn't have any monitoring devices and I didn't have any restrictions as far as where I could sleep, 
uh, like whose house I could stay over at or shit like that. Like they didn't know what I was doing because I didn't have a monitoring on me. So I got out of prison on that day. I believe it was a Wednesday. And I had enrolled into Long Beach City College prior to even getting out of jail so that the paperwork had processed and I'd be able to jump right in and play mm -hmm. some football too. Because I had I had sent a letter to my old high school football coach, Jerry Jaso. Great guy. Amazing guy. Jerry Jaso, who was supposed to have this coaching tenure that would take him to a D1 potentially NFL career as a coach. Couple bad turns. I'm not sure what exactly happened. That's that man's life. But it took him to coaching at Long Beach City College, a junior college. Great coach, legendary coach in Long Beach. I sent him a letter getting out saying, hey man, um, I'm trying to enroll into Long Beach City College and I'm hoping that I can come play football. And he hit me back like, boy, yeah, let's go. Like, <laughs> he was like, we could use you. We love you. I'd love to have you on the team out here. Um, you know, I'll help you get enrolled in school. So he helped me through the process, sent me paperwork, sent me playbooks. He was sending me plays. And when I was in prison, I was already looking at the, at the book. Wow. Yeah, man, it was crazy. So I get out on a Wednesday, I believe, that Friday or Saturday, whatever. I had a game, like a few days wow. out of prison. I was running fools the fuck over <laughs> i was playing like i had no reserve man like fresh out of jail no fear you know a lot of rage up in there mm -hmm. bro i was out there practicing working out in the jail getting ready to work like to play <laughs> pull ups and shit i was getting ready man i got out there and i was on kickoff just going wild just torpedoing fools anyways wow. So I got a chance to play football when I got out, man, it was crazy. Like, I was like, oh, my God, I'm back in pads. I'm playing ball. You know, maybe just, mm -hmm. you know, maybe the worst is behind me. You know what I mean? Maybe yeah. the worst is maybe yeah. the worst is behind me. And about a month or two, I can't really tell you how long later, I got a new pro officer. And the pro office changed from Long Beach to Compton. And then we got this mandatory meeting that that they called me in for. And I go in there and it wasn't a one-on-one -on -one meeting like they normally are. It was like 15, 20 guys inside the same room. So I'm like, what kind of fucking, you know, parole group meeting is this? And uh, we're all waiting and waiting. I didn't know who, who's what. Well. Nobody asking questions like, hey, who are you? Who are you? We're just quiet, you know, prison style. You don't ask questions. Dude walks in and says, uh, everybody in this room is a sex offender. <laughs> and... Um, Per the new law of California, state of California, every 290 registrant must wear a GPS tracking device on their ankle for the duration of their parole sentence. I had just started parole. They gave me a max, a mandatory maximum of five years on parole. I was about a month or so into parole. That man put the biggest GPS tracking device on my leg. And that was it. I couldn't leave LA County. I had a curfew. I couldn't play football because that thing could get ripped off or damaged. I could go to jail if it gets tampered with. I couldn't take baths. I don't take baths anyway, but I couldn't take baths or get into swimming pools or anything that submerged the device. But it, it, it was over. Football was over. Couldn't play. 
So I couldn't play. I stopped going to school. It was a fuck school too. I, like, what am I here? Like I just did five years in prison. I look like going to a JC right now. Like I need to get a job. I need to work. I got to get some money. I got to figure out my life. No one's taking care of me out here. So football was out. School was out. Finished one semester. That was it. But, you know, grades were horrible because I stopped going. And uh, parole got hella strict. It's got real strict for me, man. That's when it was just like the parole officer was just it's crazy, man. He was the most hateful guy. Like he'd walk into the house and just make my whole family uncomfortable. My mom felt like she was on parole when he'd walk in the house. It was tough. Parole was really tough psychologically too, because you know, for me, having you know, being a registered sex offender, you know, you move into my neighborhood, you live in my neighborhood, you want to know what sex offenders in there, I'm gonna pop up on that website. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy because you would think that the fear was me walking down the street and people being afraid of me. And the real fear was me walking down the street, afraid that somebody may recognize me from the website. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it got really dark again, which takes a lot of mental gymnastics to maneuver through. But I did, you know, best that I could. Met this girl within a couple months of being out, and we started dating and got serious real fast. And she had like a studio apartment in Hawthorne. I ended up moving in there with her and getting approved by parole to live in Hawthorne. If it wasn't for her and you know my mom helping out, I would be on the streets homeless, bro. Couldn't find work, couldn't find a job. Nobody wanted to hire me. I'd be interviews. They were ready to hire me in a heartbeat. They, woo, man, you you got everything we need. You know, we love it. God, one more question. Any priors you ever been locked up? And not only have I, <laughs> but it was for rape. I'm currently mm-hmm. on parole. I'm a registered sex offender. I got this GPS tracking device on my ankle. I got a parole officer that's going to want to check in with you every now and then to make sure I'm doing okay. You know, and I didn't get to go to college because I spent the fundamental stages of adulthood in prison. But you want to hire me? You know, it's a no. Hell no. You know, so many other people we could hire. Why would we hire you? So in the five year span of parole, I had two real jobs and one under the table job. Brian would continue to struggle like this for years, just trying to live a normal life. Eventually, though, an opportunity would come by, one that would offer him the chance to clear his name once and for all, but it would be very risky. But by that time, Brian had enough. He wanted his life back, and so he was willing to risk everything, including going back to prison. And you'll never guess who was presenting this opportunity. And that's what we'll hear about next time when we continue Brian's story in part three. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Produced and written by Lawrence Coletti. Audio engineering by Adam Lockwood. Thank you to Clio for their support of the California Innocence Project and the CIP podcast. Special contribution of music and sound elements by real-life exoneree William Michael Dillon. You can find his catalog of work at frameddillon.com. That's framed, D-I-L-L-O-N.com. Join us next time as Brian's story continues. Until then... 
I'm your host, Michael Samanchik, and you've been listening to the California Innocence Project podcast here on Legal Talk Network. Special thank you to Clio for supporting this program and for helping the California Innocence Project in its fight for freedom. More than just software, the people at Clio stand by us shoulder to shoulder as we exonerate the innocent who have spent decades behind bars for crimes they didn't commit. Clio understands our mission and what it takes to work within the criminal justice system to ensure it operates as intended. Clio generously supports our operations with their advanced technology. More time for trial, more time for motions, more time for the innocent. We are tremendously grateful for their support. In the hard-fought battles of our daily work, they are a trusted ally. To learn more about Clio and its mission to transform the legal experience for all, visit Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com.